Well, again, tonight's message is week six, Remember the Promise. Last week, we saw that King David has won, had won many battles, and he went into this time of seeking rest before he went on to, to win a chapter we read last week in chapter 8, winning battle after battle after battle after battle. And before he could do that, he had to go through this place of rest, this self-evaluation of where the presence of God was and where he was at before he could do anything. And as I was reading that again this week, preparing for this message, I began to think about his life of moving from herding sheep to being in the palace, to becoming a king, and then a life of victory, 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 victory. And I began to think of successful people, um, not just successful in the eyes of getting a lot of money, but successful in people who you have a pretty good life, you feel like um, you're on top of things, maybe you're proud of what you've accomplished, maybe not the way you got there, but you love where you're at. Um, I I started thinking about people who um, are on the opposite side of that, who you don't love where you're at, and you feel like every turn there's someone almost punching you in the gut and knocking you down. And I thought to myself on both sides of that, whether you've gone through life where it seems like dead end after dead end, or life where it feels like you're on the up and everything is going well, what do you do after that? Um, Especially for David. He's had victory after victory, and his life has gone from the bottom to the top. What do you do after that? What do you do when you know the gospel of Jesus and you know that he saved you, but it seems like, well, I believe that my life seemingly is either going backwards or it's at a stop and I'm losing all these things. What do you do after that? And as I was thinking about that, I started to look at the context of where David is Because after battle, after battle, after battle, being a king, there were some things he started to think about. And a truth in this time with David is that when you become a king, the biggest thing you need to do to make sure that no one steals your reign as king is to take out anybody that may be linked to a prior dynasty. You don't want anyone to come in and claim your throne. You don't want anyone to come in and claim that You know, well, I'm the the son of this person or the grandson of this person, and and I get the throne. So when you took the dynasty, you would take out everything beforehand. You would kill them all. Well, David had won many, many battles, and David remembers something in this chapter that he made a promise with the former king's son, Jonathan. David and Jonathan were the truest friends, best friends, And he remembered that he made a promise to Jonathan. He remembered that he made a covenant with his friend. Jonathan reached out to him and said, David, when you you take the, the kingship, when you walk into the place of royalty, when you become the king, promise me that you will not harm my family. He made a promise with him. He made a covenant with him. So David is at this place where he's won battle after battle after battle, Victory after victory, and he stops, and he remembers the promise. So we open up in 2 Samuel chapter 9, starting in verse 1. One day, David asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? David was a man after God's own heart, and after all this success, he remembers a promise. I think in life, So many times we don't take the time to remember a promise. I'm not talking so much about the promises of of loved ones and the promises of I'll do this or I'll do that. But I think so many times, whether you're on the up or you're on the down, we forget to remember the promise and the covenant of God over your life. Because we get to these places where it seems like a wall is up or another battle is coming or this valley is coming or we got to hop over a mountain or whatever it is. We feel like we're all alone. We feel like life's against us and we forget about the covenant that God made. We, we don't remember the promises that God laid out for us. And I picked out a few verses to start off this message about remembering the covenant and remembering the promise. In Jeremiah 29, 11, it says this. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're plans for good, not disaster, 
to give you a future, and to give you a hope. I think we forget to remember that. Because we come to this place in life where stuff starts to happen and we start to doubt everything, including our faith. We start to doubt if people love us, if people are true. We start to doubt if we can trust anyone. We start to doubt if we can go into ministry. We start to doubt if we can get our career back. We start to doubt if we'll ever get married. (laughs) We have all this doubt. And God's like, hold on, remember my promise. I've got plans for you. They're for good. They're not for disaster. And I want to give you a future, and I want to give you hope. There's another promise that God makes in Romans 8, 38 through 39. It says, I'm convinced, this is remembering a promise, that nothing can separate us from God's love. Nothing. Nothing. Not a financial thing that taxes you. Not a family member who betrays you. Not a job who fires you. Nothing can separate you from God's love. Not death, nor life, not angels or demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate you from God's love. Not even the amount of sin you live separates you from God's love. No matter what people tell you, you're not separated. Even in your darkest place, you're not separated. Remember verse 39, no power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate you from the love of God that's revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. These are promises, good plans, plans for a future. I've got hope for you. I've made every step uh, uh, made out that all you got to do is find it and walk in it. I am your shepherd. Nothing can separate you from me. And if all these promises weren't weren't enough, there was one that I felt like kind of wrapped it up in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 22. It says, it is God who enables us along with you to stand firm for Christ. He has commissioned us. He has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything he has promised. If it wasn't enough that he promised you couldn't be separated and that he had plans for you and he's got a future for you, he says to top that all off, remember that through the covenant of Jesus Christ, I gave you a first installment called the Holy Spirit that guarantees you everything that I promised you before you got him. Everything. No matter how much betrayal, no matter how much backbiting, no matter how much gossip, no matter what you've done, nothing cuts you off from that. But do we remember that? Because when life happens, we retreat to everything else except for the arms of the Father instead of the truth of promise. And before you know it, you're living in a life of compromise because you love the peace of blank more than trusting in the promises of a covenant that God made for you. When life happens, we react. And unfortunately, many times it takes another tragedy to remind us to get back in the arms of the Father. When God says the thing that you need to be reminded of are the promises that I've written down and inscribed on your hearts because you now house the Holy Spirit. But tonight, I declare that by the end of this message, we're going to be at a place where we can remember that promise no matter what. David has had success, and he remembers a promise, and he acts on it, even though it may not have really been proven to be fruitful for him, because David remembers, I need to make sure that I act on the covenant I made with Jonathan, and you don't break a covenant, and God doesn't break a covenant. So this is what David does, or or let me read Hebrews 13 about the covenant. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, and ratified a what? An eternal covenant with his blood. He made a covenant with you that you need to remember. May he equip you with all you need for doing his will. Everything you need, he's equipped you with. And may he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that's pleasing to him. All glory to him forever and ever. Amen. He has made a covenant with you. 
God loved you so much that he offered a covenant through the sacrifice of his son to allow you to engage in that covenant with him. But how many times do we think of the covenant? We're about to see that David remembers a covenant, but how many times do we think of the covenant that we're in with Jesus? When that person says something and you react a certain way. When that thing from your past rears its ugly head and the last thing you want to do is say, bless you in the name of Jesus. We have all these things that come at us and it's really hard sometimes to remember the covenant. Truth be told, I believe that the church has become ineffective because we think more on good agendas than remembering the covenant. Because there's so many people that have great agendas. Some of the most Satan-worshipping celebrities do more good than the church. And I don't think God looks at that and says, bless them. I think God says, I want all this to flow from you working out of a covenant that I made for you that you claim you're in. We get too, 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 too into the good agenda and the, well, it's for a good cause. Well, it's for a good thing. And God's like, everything that flows from you should be out of a covenant with me. Everything. What you give your money to does not bless you. My covenant does. What you give your, everything's out of the covenant. A covenant is so big, and David remembers it. So look at verse 2. I'm just trying to set this up for y'all. So he summoned a man named Ziba who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba, the king asked? Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. The king asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? Now remember, what was the promise he made? If there's anyone in the family alive, we're going to spare their life and we're going to take care of them. If you remember the past few weeks, every time one of Saul's sons were killed, David had the people killed. That's how, much, that's how seriously he took the covenant. The king, the king asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. And Zebra replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive, and he is crippled in both feet. So there is a grandson of King Saul still alive. There is someone left in the dynasty. Now, remember what's customary this time. If someone's in the dynasty, kill him. But David said to while operate out of what's beneficial to me in this moment or do I operate out of a covenant that I made with Jonathan? And that's where we're at. When something happens, we always ask, is it beneficial to me or is it beneficial to the covenant? God says, serve at relentless. Is it beneficial to my time? Or is it beneficial to the covenant? God says, if you want me to bless your house, tithe. This is what we do. Is it beneficial to me right now? Or the covenant? Because what we do is we measure everything up by circumstances. Do I have the means? Can I do this? Remember the promises. I have given you an installment of the Holy Spirit that gives you everything you need to walk in your covenant with me. And for some reason, we don't remember that that covenant's good enough. Y'all quiet tonight. I hope this is sinking in. Everything we are on, every decision we make, for some reason, that covenant is not good enough. If you remember, when David's looking at this covenant because it's so important, there was a story back in 2 Samuel 4.4. It seemed obscure, but now it comes to light with where we need it. In 4.4, says, Saul, son's Jonathan, had a son named Mephibosheth. Everyone say Mephibosheth. He was crippled as a child. He was five years old when the report came that Jezreel, from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in the battle. Y'all remember that? When the child's nurse heard the news, she picked him up and fled. But as she hurried, she dropped him, and he became crippled. So you've got the grandson of the king who was crippled at five years old. He was crippled, and he was disabled. David asked if there was anyone. He said, is there anyone left? Which tells me something. David was the king, 
and he knew about everything. So if he had to ask if there was anything left, that means Mephibosheth was in hiding. Because it wasn't exposed where he was living. It wasn't knowledge that the grandson of King Saul was about. Mephibosheth, for all David knew, didn't exist. He was dead. We don't know. But for some reason, Mephibosheth was in hiding. The heir to the throne. Because you got King Saul, all his sons are dead. So the next people in line to take the throne of the king will be the grandson. And I started to ask, why is it that the grandson of the king, the one who is rightfully the heir to the throne, why is he hiding? You want to know why he's hiding? Because he's vulnerable to being taken out. Because back in this time, if someone's alive to take the dynasty, we need to kill him. So how much... Of it is an easy target that the grandson of the king is crippled in both feet. He ain't like 5K over here. (laughs) He can't run. He can't get out of whatever. He's crippled. He's been taken into hiding because they didn't stick around long enough to hear about the covenant that would have spared his life. And we live in a time when most people have not heard about the covenant that would save their life. All they hear is about the dynasty of the church, dynasty of organizations and how big a church is growing, how good a preacher preaches, how much money they give to this and that and that, and no one's hearing about a covenant that would spare their life. And they are so displaced from their destiny and so crippled by life circumstances that instead of running into the light of a church body that is remembering the covenant, They were hiding in darkness and no one remembers them. I was going to say this to the end, but I think it's appropriate now. You've got a man destined for royalty. And he was not crippled by his own accord. He was crippled by a woman that he trusted. His nurse. She ran, dropped him, And he was crippled in both of his legs. And there are so many times where we never want to move forward in life because all we are held back is by the things that crippled us that we had no control over. Well, Kyle, you don't know what happened to me when I was a child. My mother and father neglected me. I was abused by a parent. I've been through rough marriages I can't trust anymore. You don't know the hell I've been through. What you're saying is you're crippled and you can't walk in your rightful place as an heir to the throne, as a king. And we have a world that is walking crippled and they are so used to their cripple and in their hiding that we find them everywhere else rather than the arms of God. And the ones who have known God hide in these buildings that we call church. Because we don't remember, is there anyone left? And David starts to say, hey, is there anyone left out there? that can benefit from a covenant that I made a long time ago. And he finds out that there is a crippled grandson of the king himself who is so displaced from his destiny that he's living somewhere other than being in the kingdom. He's in shame. He's in hiding. He's vulnerable to death. And the enemy has convinced him that the best place to live is outside of their destiny. But isn't that where we get? We think about the things that have crippled us. We think about the circumstances that have made us who we are. We think about the things that we missed out on or didn't get. And we, for some reason, we start to believe that that reality is okay to lean into. We start to believe like, well, this is just who I am and God made me this way. No, God didn't make you this way. You were crippled and you're believing more and you're crippled than your ability to walk. And he's hiding when he has a rightful place to be in royalty. Look at it again, 2 Samuel 9, 4. Where is he, the king asked. And Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the home of 
Nikir, son of Amiel. Mephibosheth is so far displaced from his destiny that he isn't even living in his own house. He's living displaced in the house of another man. And this is the grandson of the king. His rightful living quarters should be in a palace. And he's so displaced that he's living in a place called Lodabar in the house of a man that's not even someone he's related to. We could get into a whole study on Lodabar, but Lodabar means no word and, no, and, and, and it, it, it means no resource. Lodabar is like the lowest place he can be. It's a place where there's no life, where there's no hope, where there's no good word being spoken. But so many of us live in this place of Lodabar and we're crippled. Because God says, I have made you unto royalty. I've bought you with my blood. I've made a covenant with you. Do you remember the covenant that I, asked, that I have made a way for you to enter into? Do you remember that covenant when all you can do is sit back in depression? When, do you remember that covenant when you sit back into an addiction? Do you remember that covenant when you go into the arms of a woman or a man who is not your wife and not your husband? Do you remember the covenant or have you just embraced being crippled we don't remember the promise enough because life happens and it stinks but we don't remember the promise we remember the cripple we remember the circumstance and we tell God every reason why we can't walk back into our rightful calling Ephesians 1, 5 through 7 says this. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family. You know what adoption means? It means even though you were displaced, now you're in a good family. <laughs> in advance to adopt us into his family, bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. In other words, he says, when I made a covenant with you through the sacrifice of my son, you were adopted. This is what he wanted to do and gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the righteous, for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He says, when Jesus purchased your freedom with his blood, you regain access through a covenant to become adopted into a family. And I believe that God looks at us sometimes and he says, I have made a covenant with you that you can live in the kingdom of God and yet you're still living in a place that you were never destined to be. And I'm not talking about a physical living necessarily. I'm talking about a mental state. I'm talking about a way of life. We've, been, we, we, we've taken on this way of life that was never part of the plans that God made out. Never part of the destiny that he called you to walk into. Why is it that if God has adopted us into a kingdom, we're living in a reality of not enough or lost or broken or confused. We're tossed to and fro by every circumstance. And I believe God is telling us tonight that we need to get up and take our rightful places as sons and daughters of him and stop letting our degree of cripple tell us what we have a right to. I may have a cripple here, but I am not going to live by that crippling. I know my weaknesses. I'm not going to let them tell me what I can and cannot have. I'm going to work at it. You know, when you, when you go into a gym, I've been working out the past couple weeks, and y'all know the story. I work out for like a month or two, and then I don't for six months, and then I get back into it. Y'all know. But I've been working out the past couple weeks, and you go in, and I'm thinking I can, I can curl, let's, I'm just going to say 200 pounds so I can seem strong tonight <laughs> with one arm. So I'm, you know, I got the 200-pound weight with one arm. And I think I can do it, but then I realized that 20 pounds is more realistic but the beautiful thing is if I, if I keep working at the 20, I'm going to increase to a 40 and then a 60 and then so on and so forth. But why is it that in life, when we see that we're crippled at 200, we stay satisfied at 20? And we never think that we can move forward. We never think that we can do anything because you don't want to work at walking in and walking out a covenant that's meant for you. 
We, 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 we don't want to work at getting out of our crippled mindset. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It does not say that your mind is transformed the moment you say, Jesus, renew it. It takes work. How do I work so successfully at that? Because I remember the promise that God has made a way for me and I'm not going to let my crippleness prevent me. I'm going to walk into what he has done. What has he done? He's adopted you as a king, as a queen, as a prince, as a prince, whatever. He says you are the sons and daughters of a king. You know what that means? You rule. That doesn't mean you get ruled by everything. That doesn't mean your circumstances tell you how to operate. That doesn't mean your finances tell you when you can and when you can't. You call the shots. You make the, you, you make the decisions. You govern your life. And God says, I am so good that you can choose to govern it with me or govern it without me. It's your decision. But I have made a covenant, so remember that in the way you govern your life. Govern it unto me, and everything you need will be provided. So in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 5, David sends for him and brings him from Machir's home. Do you realize in remembering the promise that that is the very thing that God is doing? That you've been crippled by a circumstance, that you've been put out by life, and God says, come home. Come home. You've been living in a place out of your destiny far too long. And I know most of the circumstances of the people in this room. That's the beauty about walking into the vision of a smaller house. That we can be in true intimacy. And I know every person who has, who has had success. I've known every marriage that's fallen apart. I know every bit of pride that you face. I know every bit of humility that you face. I know who has good jobs. I know who has hard times. I know who's good with a dollar. I know who I wouldn't trust with a dollar. And I believe God's just telling you all tonight, come home, son. Come home, daughter. Remember the covenant I made with you? You're too good to stay where you're at. In Psalm 139, it says it like this in verse 5. You go before me and you follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you're there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night. But even in darkness, even in the crippling, even in the Lodabar, even in the living outside of your destiny, you cannot hide from God. To you, the night shines bright as the sky. Darkness and light are the same to you. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. It doesn't matter how long you've been running. Nothing, remember, remember the promise. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. It doesn't matter how wrapped up you are in things not of God. You have not escaped him. Why, does, why should that comfort you? Because some people hear that and say, I can't escape God. He knows this. He knows that. Because even in the knowing, his covenant didn't break. And he's saying, come home. Come back to me. I don't care how crippled and messed up and far gone you are. You're still my son and you're still my daughter. He loves you so much that he says, I know every condition of you, every condition of your heart. I know what you think you deserve. But I made a covenant with you that, 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 so that you could deserve a seat in my kingdom, so that you could deserve to walk as royalty on this earth. Do you remember that? Or have you retreated to a destiny that was never meant for you? Because you believe more in your cripple than in the promise because we haven't remembered the covenant. Can you imagine how scared Mephibosheth might, might be right now? Because it was customary. If you alive, the king's going to take you out. And King David just called for Mephibosheth 
to come before him. I bet Mephibosheth was so scared. Isaiah 43.1 says this, But now, O Jacob, listen to the Lord who created you, O Israel, the one who formed you. Do not be afraid. I've ransomed you, and I've called you by name. You are mine. Never be scared of walking into the presence of God with all your stuff. The only thing you should fear is that God would ever be apart from you. And he says, when you think that I'm not with you, remember the covenant. You can't escape me. I bet Mephibosheth is scared. I bet he's thinking, what is going to happen? And in 2 Samuel 9, verse 6, it says this. His name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson. And when he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. And David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. And this is what David says, don't be afraid. I intend to show kindness to you because I think you're great. No, no, no. I, I, I intend to show kindness to you because you've been proven faithful. No. I intend to show kindness to you because you go to church every week. No. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. You know what God the Father says? I intend to show kindness to you because of the covenant you entered into with my son who bled for you. That, 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 that should be such a weight lifting off of us because we, we, we get so scared sometimes that if we come to God, he's going to know all of our stuff. What's the promise? I know all your stuff. And I'm still calling you home. What's keeping you back from me? What's keeping you separated? I don't see the cripple. I see greatness. I see my son. I see my daughter. Would you remember the covenant? Because I really believe this. I believe the reason we don't walk into our destinies is because we don't remember this covenant. All we remember is I'm crippled. I've had a bad life. I've had bad cars. I've had a bad family. I've had a bad job. Nothing works out for me. Nothing does this. Nothing does this. And God says, I've given you a first installment of the Holy Spirit that will bring everything you need, but you still live in Lodabar. Would you come home? Don't be afraid. I intend to show you kindness to you because of my promise to your father. I'll give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? Mephibosheth responds in fear, and David replies, I've got good intentions for you. What are the good intentions? He says, I will restore everything that you're not worthy for. It was such a huge grace that was given over Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth says, who am I that I deserve this? You need to remember something tonight, the place you hold in the eyes of God. He says, if you will remember the covenant, you would embrace the fact that even though you're not worthy, I have made you worthy to sit at my table. And this is what we do in the church. This is what we do in life. Kyle, I've got to get some things right before I serve. You are not remembering the promise. Kyle, I've got to get some things settled in my life before I can pray for someone at an altar, before I can pray on the behalf of people at prayer night, before I can teach students. I've got to get some things right. And God says, you're not remembering the promise. I have made you worthy of sitting at a table of kings so that you could walk kingly on this earth. Psalm 8, 3 through 6 says this, When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should even care for them? And this is the response that God showed David when he wrote it. You've made humans only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. Do you know what some versions talk about in the order of things? This is what we think. We think God, angels, earth, and man. God says, I've made you lower than me 
and above the angels. That's, that's how precious you are in a covenant. Do, 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 do you realize how spectacular you are that he says, I've put you that high and who's closest to me? You made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority. There is nothing on this earth that gets to tell you who you are or what you do because everything's put under whose authority? Yours. You want to know why this earth is so messed up? This world is so messed up because God is so good that he honors that. So the reason there's so much confusion is because the authority is in people whose hands have not been remembering the covenant. We, we are guiding this earth. Everything's under our command. So if the church is going to do what it's called to do, let's remember the promise and start governing things. Start taking authority over things. Your job should not make you come home depressed because your job is not your authority. Your boss is not even your authority. Let me tell you what I mean. Because we get in this place where it's like, okay, well, Kyle, you tell us that we have the authority, but I have a boss. But this is what you do. A boss says something to you that messes with you, and you get mad and you put on Facebook how horrible your boss is, and you go home, and you're depressed, and you're mad, you're angry, and because you're mad and angry, you take it out on your kids, you take it out on your wife, and you got to pay for marriage counseling, and then you go through this and this and this and this and this. <laughs> and God says, why did you give that power to a man who only signed your paycheck? When I say that your boss is not your authority, what I mean is your boss has no legal right to tell you how you are to feel the rest of your day and how you are to operate the rest of your day. Your boss has no legal right to tell you how your family should, should see you when you come home. The only thing that, that, that has the authority to do that is you. That's why God says you be transformed by renewing your mind so that when you come through bad climate changes in the earth, the climate doesn't cause you to change. You know what I get sick of? Offending people in church. You shouldn't be giving me that much authority. <laughs> your offense is your problem, sister or brother. <laughs> now tell me, because I'm want to. i not so prideful that I need to write where I'm wrong. I, I, I'm not that prideful. I was at one time. But we have got to get to this place where we remember what we have. That we remember because I have the authority over me. Oh, the only thing I have to worry about is who can I honor? Because I'm a king. I sit at the table. King Jesus, how would, how would you have me operate? Honor your mother and father. Bless your enemies. It shouldn't be about like putting up this wall because I'm crippled and I'm in lower the bar and I don't have a good life and, and my destiny hasn't come and, and you don't know how bad I have it, Kyle. No, you, shut your mouth. Walk. Re, re, remember the promise and start walking in your destiny. Well, what's my destiny? You are a child of the king. <laughs> I don't know what that was. <laughs> Amen. Second hmm. Samuel 9, 7. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show you kindness because of your promise to your father. I'll give you all the property once belonged to your grandfather Saul. You will eat here with me at the king's table. Not only will he give the property back, but he says you get to eat at the table. Jesus makes a declaration in Luke 22. Look at this, verse 29. Just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in the kingdom. You will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You don't remember that part of covenant, do you? You've been granted the right. Do you remember that? Because a lot of times we don't remember. And life causes us to believe this truth that's not truth. Jesus says, I have granted you the right to eat and drink at the table in my kingdom. Why do you settle for every other table? 
Why is it that you choose to feast at a table of addiction? I'm not talking about just drugs or cigarettes or alcohol. That's a little plug for those of you that might be in that. <laughs> Love y'all. Well, why, do you, why do you sit at a table of addiction of pornography? Why do you sit at a table of addiction of grieving? The Bible says there's a time to grieve. If you've been grieving longer than that time, you need to realize that you're in an unhealthy place and you don't deserve to be at that table. What table are you sitting at? Do you remember that you're granted to sit at the table of a king? You know what kind of access you have at a king's table? Servants give you the food. Servants give you the drink. You have access to everything because you are at the table of the king. What, he said, what was the promise in the covenant? I've given you the first installment of the Holy Spirit to give you everything that you will ever need. You see, the thing is, God doesn't care about things. So he says, if you need the things, I'll give it to you. I don't care about the things. I just care about one thing. Seek first the kingdom. That's it. You know how you seek first the kingdom? Sitting at the right table where you have no worry about anything else. Well, I can't seek first the kingdom, Kyle, because you don't know how hard it is I have at my life. Well, then move your seat to the right table. Because if you're at a king's table, nothing affects you. You're at the top. You're at the top. You're at the top. Remember the covenant. He says, you are now at the table of a king. So seek first my kingdom, because when you're at the king's table, all of this stuff shall be added unto you because it's under you. but we don't believe that. You know what Mephibosheth believed? Look at verse 8 again. Is this okay? Yeah. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and explained, who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? Mephibosheth saw a, de saw a dead dog. You know what David saw? Royalty. Why did Mephibosheth only see a dog? Because it was all those years of living outside the promise. And I believe one reason David saw it. Because if you remember when God called David as a king, it wasn't when he was a king. It wasn't when he was in a palace. It was when his job was to shuffle around sheep and clean up their poop. And live outside day and night in the worst conditions, fighting off lions and tigers and bears, oh my He was there. He says, Mephibosheth, I, I know where you're at. But I'm going to remember the promise. I know you've been believing this truth that you're crippled and you don't deserve to be at this table. But trust me, the only person who qualifies you for this table is not your conditions. It's my God. And under the name of my God and the covenant I made with my friend Jonathan, you get your butt to this table. And some of you can't believe you're kingly. Some of you don't believe you're worth more because you still see yourself as that dead dog when God has, says, has said, I've adopted you. Get to the right table. And then in verse 9, it says, The king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth... Your master's grandson, he'll eat here at my table. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba replied, yes, my lord, the king, I'm your servant. I will do all that you've commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. And from then on, all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. Mephibosheth was no longer in hiding. His past no longer haunted him. What was his past? I'm in the dynasty of a king. I should be dead. He was no longer living in the reality of poverty in a place that had no promise of moving forward. He walked back into what he originally deserved because he answered the call of the king, his invitation to sit at my table. Do you know that before sin entered the world, we had a place and a right to feast at the table of God? Think about it. When Adam sinned, the, the first thing 
that was unbeknownst to God was, where are you at? Why would you leave the table? You walked with me. You feasted with me. We were walking hand in hand. And now you're away from me. And the rest of eternity was written so that you could get an invitation back to the table. Do you remember that every time life comes at you? Every time circumstances try to convince you of something? Gosh, you, you have such a beautiful right. You know, when we think back at what happened at Mephibosheth at five years old, there was such there was such an automatic response to retreat back to the thing. It happens to me quite a bit. I think relentless church is in its, is in its strongest season. You know, I look at other churches and say, man, y'all are growing fast. And I was talking to one pastor uh, lately. I said, man, you've grown from this to this in just two or three years. Man, that's awesome. And uh, they've got a lot of people. And you know what he told me? He said, I wish I had growth like you. I said, what do you mean? He said, you raised $50,000 in your church with one outside source that was under a grand. I raised $50,000 and 49 of it was from one source that didn't even walk into my doors. He said, I wish I had people who were givers like yours. I talked to him about all the people that have been coming to me about ministries and how we have this people who are walking in, the, in their gift of creativity and music and people are coming to me wanting to start uh, healing centers and people are coming to me wanting to develop more prophetic schools and schools of intercession. And, and I, I've, I've got people that, 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 that are, I, I have one who came to prayer two weeks ago. She prayed for someone and they got healed and she never prayed for anyone to get healed before. And I, I, as I was talking about this, they're like, I want that kind of growth. I think we're in the best season ever. I love that I can look out at this congregation and know everyone in here by name. But I go through times where I retreat, thinking of the mess-ups that don't qualify me to be here, thinking of the, the early days of Relentless where I had the wrong motives in building a church. I think about that stuff all the time. But then I'm quickly reminded because I have to remember the promise. God says, amen. I don't care what you've gone through. I've seen it all. You can't escape from me. Let me remind you that you do deserve a place at this table. Why do I deserve it, God? I'm nothing because I bought it for you. Mephibosheth got the place at the table that life took away. And in verse 13, I want to read it again. Mephibosheth, he was crippled in both feet. He lived in Jerusalem and ate at the table. You know what's funny about this, that the Christians get it wrong? He got at the table, but he was still crippled. Being at the table did not grant him automatic healing. It granted him favor to start to learn how to walk again. And there's so many times that God says, come to the table, and we think that that means everything's supposed to line up. But Phibosheth still couldn't walk. He had to crawl to the table. He probably had to get people to get him up into a seat. And we put this qualifier on God's table, like, well, God's called me, so if I remember the covenant, that means all of life's hurts are going to just fix themselves. That means everything is just going to work out. And God says, no, no, no. If you would just get at my table so that you can get above your circumstances and seek first the kingdom, I'll add all the other stuff to you. It's not get healed and get at the table. It's get at the table and walk out your healing. It's not let me get my mind right and get to the table. It's let the favor of the table help you in the process of getting your mind right. 
getting to the table has nothing to do with you being at the, at the place where you're perfect. Getting at the table gives you the favor of walking as if you are whole. Because what does Jesus says? You have been made whole. Now your whole life is walking into that truth versus the truth of cripple, versus the truth of Lodabar, versus the truth of being displaced. He says everything in your life should be governed by one thing. You are sitting at the right table all because you remember the promise. Do you remember the promise? Do you remember the promise? Are you the David who remembers the promise so you start to bless others and call things out and start to, to walk out the promise? Are you a Mephibosheth where everything's been taken from you but you've got to remember the promise that, 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 that was made for you on behalf of you, that Jesus stood in the gap of you when God the Father says, I've got to cut this thing out the garden. And Jesus says, Father, give me one more year with the garden so I can make some things work. Are you at the place where you've been so convinced that you're not worthy of God that Jesus says, I bought you all you need to get at the table? I'm not sure if you're a David. I'm not sure if you're a Mephibosheth. But I know one thing. Both of them are at the same table. That's what Jesus did for you. And I want to close with the scripture, Ephesians 1.11. Furthermore, because we are united in Christ, we received an inheritance from God. He chose you in advance. And he makes everything work out according to his plan. I don't care where you're at in life, whether it's up, down, far removed, or far away. We all are granted one thing, the opportunity to sit at the table of the king and be so far removed from our low to bar and from our crippled state that we can start walking as mighty men and women of God and change the city, change our families, and change this world because we remember the promise.